Let's uh, begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for some beautiful weather out there, nice, sunny, and bright. We could use some more rain, but uh, we leave that up to you. So we thank you for the ability and the time to uh, sit and just think about uh, Holy Scripture and what it means and what it is and some of the events that it depicts. But Holy Scripture is not meant to be read as history. And so we ask that you help us to really understand its purpose today and its meaning. So give us the strength and the courage to kind of set aside previous conceived notions and ideas and open our minds and our hearts to what it is you want us to hear from what is said. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. I use that prayer really in a way to be a preamble to what we're going to be talking about today. Some of, or most of, chapters 43 and the first part of 44 are things that we've already talked about. And you might wonder, well, why the repetition? Why are we going over and over some of these same things? And partly, it's because, as I've said many times before, one of the techniques of Jewish writing uh, at this time was repetition. When they would try to emphasize certain points, good morning, they would repeat, repeat, and repeat. But what I would like to do is to, um, you can sit with her, you know, unless you're mad at her or she's mad at you. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, after the, after the class she will be. (laughs) Okay. Well, we, like I said before, we take this seriously, but there's no reason why we can't have a little fun once in a while. Uh, I'm not saying at whose expense. Okay. It's hard to get back, you know, to where I was. <laughs> Anyways, what I'd like to do is to just kind of cover, recover, or review what we've been through and what we've talked about thus far in order to kind of bring it together because then I want to talk about something that is not in this book but that is in a way obvious if you think about it. In chapter 40, we start out with prophet Isaiah, or second Isaiah, telling the people of the exile Uh, This is people, the Jewish people who have been exiled in Jerusalem for 50 or 60 years. And he's telling them now that their exile is about to end. It has not ended yet. And even up through chapter 44, 
they are still not departed yet from Babylon. That comes later. But he tells them there that their sentence or their time period uh, has now been completed and God is going to release them. So obviously, many of them are very happy. Many of them are very concerned. And many of them are indifferent and really don't care. Uh, you have the full spectrum of emotions, I'm sure. That would be the same if somebody told you you had to get up uh, and leave everything you've been living uh, or your living conditions and so forth or go back to the state or the city that you came from. I came from Detroit, Michigan, and uh, if anybody told me I had to go back there, believe me, I would be very upset, you know, uh, even though I do have sisters and relatives living there, yet uh, I do not want to go back to Detroit, Michigan, you know. So, you can imagine, and you've got to think about these people as real people and all of the emotions that they have gone through or will be going through for the time being. So we had God telling the people, comfort my people. Give them comfort. Let them know that their um, time period has been uh, more than enough to extinguish uh, the guilt of their sins. You see, they got to is to Babylon not uh, because they were just conquered people, but because God allowed them to be conquered because of their sins. Remember, he had different people trying to guide them and teach them before they ended up in this situation, and they totally ignored them. Uh, the northern kingdom was conquered for the same reason. The northern kingdom was actually worse than the southern kingdom in disobedience and idolatry and apostasy and so forth. Um, and they were overrun by the Assyrians way back in the uh, in 722 BC. So now we have the same situation in the southern kingdom where the exiles uh, or the Jewish people were conquered by the Babylonians and carted off, most of them were carted off uh, to Babylon for 50 or 60 years. And I say 50 or 60, it's not because I don't know, but because there was two different periods of conquest. In seven, uh, 597 was the original time period, and then again in 587 is when most of them were taken to Babylon. Okay. So they spent a great deal of time there. Many of them complained and grumbled because they didn't know why they got there. They didn't realize that God was trying to warn them in a special way of their disobedience and their neglect of the laws 
that God had given them through Moses. (coughs) But now, God has a need for the Jewish people. He has spent 1,500 years. Can you imagine 1,500 years from the time of Abraham sort of forming this nation as a beginning of his plan of salvation, as the implementation of his plan of salvation. So it was important that he continue taking these people after he had invested so much time with them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Um, And so what he's doing now is he's telling them that eventually he's going to bring them back and he has to prepare them for the journey. Well, a lot of them are not convinced because, as I've said before, they went through the same kind of thing back at the time of Moses when they were released from Egypt. And if you recall the, the story, after they got out of Egypt, the Pharaoh finally made up his mind after the 10th plague uh, and allowed them to go, but then he changed his mind and he pursued them to bring them back. Well, that was the story of how he allowed the Jewish people to go through the Red Sea by parting the waters and allowing them to dry, to walk through on dry land. Remember that? And the Pharaoh's army uh, was coming right behind them. So once they got onto the other side and the Pharaoh's army started to pursue them in this same path on the dry land through the waters, he closed up the waters and they all drowned. Uh, whether that actually happened in exactly that way, we don't know for sure. But that is at least what uh, we are told in the book of Exodus. Okay? So, the uh, the exodus from Egypt was always, to the Jewish people, the most important event in the life of Judaism and was always looked upon as God's favoring his people. And this whole idea of the chosen people came out of that experience. And they carried that for 1,500 years. But there was always the negative side. Is that going to be repeated now once he releases the Jewish people from Babylon and they start migrating back to Jerusalem? Is he going to send uh, Cyrus, who allowed them to uh, leave and pursue them out in the desert to kill them out there? And so you have this problem of doubt. And that is what God is constantly convincing them. And that is why you have so much repetition here in these first few chapters of Second Isaiah. Is this trying to convince these people. Now, let's stop there for a minute and talk about the other side, the people that you don't hear about. Obviously, not everyone. See, the one problem that we have is we don't know what numbers we're talking about. 
we have no idea of how many people were carted off to Babylon. Uh, some books say hundreds of thousands. Well, that is not likely because when you think about it, there couldn't have been hundreds of thousands of people living in southern Israel at the time. And, you know, just think about the effort to take that many people and move them from uh, one country to another on foot. Uh, uh, the logistics would be impossible. So we don't really know how many people uh, actually we're talking about. But obviously, let's say we're talking about a thousand people. Out of a thousand people, you're going to have a lot of doubters, but you're going to have a lot of people who are trusting in God as well, are you not? Remember, we talked about the synagogue system beginning in Babylon. And so there obviously had to be a number of people who were good and faithful people and did obey the teachings of Moses. Because otherwise, why would they start the synagogue system? In other words, and that was little house groups of people who would get together and study the scriptures. Now, what scriptures did they study? They studied primarily the book of Deuteronomy. It wasn't called that at the time. They called it the book of the law. And they still refer to Deuteronomy as the book of the law. And actually, that book became the basis for modern Judaism. It was refined in many ways, uh, but in the 4th century A.D., and from there through the 12th century A.D., modern Judaism became, or it was not became, but was transformed into a faith that really didn't exist way back at the time of Babylonians. Okay. And it came through the efforts of a rabbi by the name of Maimonides. Okay. I don't know whether you've heard that before. Uh, if you have Jewish relatives, you might they might refer to him as Rambang. Uh, why, I don't know, but that is what they refer to this particular uh, person okay, who lived in the latter part of the 12th century A.D. Okay. He refined a great deal of the Jewish law and laws. He was the one that took uh, the six. 113 laws of Moses and actually minced them down into a lot more to the point where you could hardly breathe without uh, bumping up against some law. But that's something we'll talk about at another time. Obviously, there had to be good people among this, let's say, thousand uh, that were captives or exiles, and many of them, we have no idea, but many of them were good people and brought back from Babylon the synagogue system. And the reason they brought it back was partly because 
the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. This was Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Obviously, it was rebuilt uh, through the efforts of Nehemiah, but it took a number of years, 72 years to be exact according to scriptures, all right, to rebuild it. During that time, they wanted a place to worship and to study. And so the synagogue system uh, continued even after they got back to Jerusalem and actually grew. And of course, it became really more practical as the people spread out and back into the northern uh, or what was the northern kingdom of of Israel. Uh, remember that Judah, the province of Judah, which contains Jerusalem and Bethlehem and a few other little cities, was relatively small in the 5th century B.C., 5th or 6th century B.C. And so the people, as they came back, gradually, over a period of time, up to the time of Christ, expanded even into the northern kingdom. Okay, Well, it was impractical at the time of Christ for the people who tried to get to the temple that was finally rebuilt by uh, Herod the Great, the first Herod. Uh, and so the synagogue system continued. It was not a place where uh, sacrifices took place. That still continued to be in the temple in Jerusalem only. But as a place of study and prayer, prayer and study, whichever, uh, the synagogue system not only continued, but it grew and became very strong and, of course, is still strong today. There are no official Jewish temples throughout the world. They may call themselves temples, but technically in their own faith, and they will admit this in their own faith, that these are synagogues, even though they may say temple such and such. Okay. Uh, in fact, I used to work near the largest temple in uh, Los Angeles on Wilshire Boulevard, but technically that was not a temple, it was a synagogue. Because the animal sacrifice that was authorized by Moses or by God through Moses and then repeated down through the ages to the time uh, of David and the time of the first uh, temple destruction. And then it was picked up and continued down to the second temple, uh, again, which was built by Herod the Great and destroyed in 70 A.D. Once it was destroyed in 70 A.D., animal sacrifice by the Jewish people disappeared. But the Christians picked that up and said the temple was destroyed because of the Jewish people's refusal to accept the teachings and the person of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And that is probably true. Okay, But more importantly, I think, the temple was 
repre- the temple was so important to the Jewish people that it represented God within their midst. They placed the temple as God himself, virtually. And unfortunately, because of their somewhat uh, warped thinking, they felt that God was in the temple and whatever they did inside the temple was either to honor God or uh, in some ways insult God. But outside the temple, they could do anything and God wouldn't know about it. And that's, you know, it's hard to understand that because we know, and I'm sure they believed, but they put it out of their minds, that God was omnipotent. He knew everything that was going on, and God was not boxed into uh, the temple or any other one place where he didn't know or couldn't know what was going on elsewhere. Uh, But that was their thinking. And so the temple, when it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, who got back at the Jewish people for some of the things that they did, it was really God's withdrawing his favoritism upon the Jewish people because they failed to recognize God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Now, I know that's getting way ahead of what's here in Isaiah, but it leads up to it. Yes, Chet? Well, (laughs) question for, just to repeat the question. Chet asks if the people, the Jewish people continued to uh, refuse to obey or God had such a difficult time in convincing the Jewish people uh, to follow him, why didn't he pick somebody else? Well, yes, but he could have. He could have wiped them out too. But that is taking away free will. You see? And the other thing is, he had, like I said, 1,500 years invested in these people. And all of the uh, traditions and so forth that uh, were in place were partly because he wanted this foundation. Remember, when Jesus Christ did come upon earth, he didn't, re- uh, he didn't introduce a lot of new things. The one thing that he did introduce was the idea of the Trinity. Okay. But most of what he taught was returning to the basics that came to us from Moses. Okay. Out of the Ten Commandments. In fact, he said, and again, this is repeated by St. Paul in his teachings, that the 613 Jewish laws could be condensed down to two. Love of God and love of neighbor. If you follow that, 
that really suffices to fulfill all of the law. You didn't have to worry about all of the, the minor details. Those were not important. A lot of those details were not established by God in the first place. They were established by Moses for hygiene purposes. The wandering in the desert for 40 years created a number of problems relating to hygiene, cooking, uh, cleanliness, health, and so forth. Those were all practical purposes. If you took out all of those, what you would have left of the 613 laws would boil down really to the two that God in Jesus Christ and again in St. Paul's teachings boil down to two, love of God and love of neighbor. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, when you mentioned um, you know, some years in the desert, is that like metaphorical? Because it certainly takes six months, hundreds of years to go from one place to the other, especially if they know where they're going. And they did know where they were going, yes. Um, no, there was a reason for the 40 years. Now, the word 40 is... Um, is a convenience number. You have 40 several, several times throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And that is because there were no calendars that were universally accepted. And so when they would write their history about what happened and they needed a time period, they had no way to go back with calendars. So they would just use 40 meaning a long but imprecise period of time. But the 40 years that you're talking about, wandering in the desert, was because they disobeyed God in several different time periods of importance. First is the molten calf thing. Secondly, they disobeyed God when Moses sent... um, spies, you might say, that's the word used in the Bible, to go into the promised land shortly after they left Egypt, as you've just pointed out, Egypt and Israel, you know, bump up against each other, have a common border, uh, so it's not that far away. But these people that were sent in to see what was there uh, came back saying, oh, we don't want to go there. Uh, There's giants there. And we're afraid they will really outnumber us. They were telling stories that just weren't true. Uh, but it frightened the Israelites at the time. And so they didn't. Another time was when they were looking for water and food. And they were getting tired of the provisions that they had brought from Egypt because they were running out. They were grumbling and griping and saying, why don't we go back to Egypt? At least we had food there. And that is when God told Moses to strike the rock and uh, water flowed out. And then that is the time when 
the manna came from heaven and quail at night, etc., to feed them. So he took care of them throughout this time period, but it was a time period of punishment. So time in the desert was always looked upon as a time of purification, and it still was looked upon that time. A time of purification and cleanliness. All right. Uh, because during that 40 years, those people who doubted and um, perpetrated the um, displeasure and, and the fear and so forth among the people died out. And so the only people that were really brought in to the promised land after the wandering in the desert were those people who were faithful to God or were too young to be involved in the problem. So wandering in the desert, yes, was a long period of time, not because they didn't know where they were going, but because God wouldn't let them in. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm having trouble envisioning the Jewish community in, in Babylon. Now, given that they're probably in some kind of a ghetto community, you've got synagogues going on, there's no mention now about leadership. Isaiah is prophesizing to whom? And how is he distributing his prophecy? Not to the leaders, it doesn't sound like. Well, there are no leaders. All right? If you read the second book of Kings, you will see that at the time that Babylon was, uh, rather that Israel or Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, uh, they killed or captured, in one case they put out the eyes of one of the, the kings and they installed their own king temporarily, you might say, on uh, Judah, uh, the kingdom of Judah, that is. Once they got to Babylon, the leadership disappeared. The monarchy collapsed and disappeared. Okay? So that no more monarchy. That's, monarchy was started way back in the 10th century with Saul and, and David and then Solomon, etc., and ended at the time of the Babylonian conquest. Alright? It disappeared forever. There was no more monarchy. The people in Babylon, the exiles in Babylon, had no leaders. In fact, if you go to chapter 3 of the book of David, it talks about uh, the, the lamentation, you might say, of remembering the problems. It says, we have no leadership, we have no uh, place of worship. We have no prince or prophet or first fruits to offer. Okay, so they had really nothing that they could call their own in in um, Babylon. But through the synagogue system, the priestly group of people, the the ones that remained faithful to God throughout this time period rose up in power. And that is when the high priest and the priest of the temple took over the leadership. 
But that didn't really gel, you might say, until they came back to Israel. Um, it didn't work, obviously, because they were exiles. They were conquered people in Babylon. But once they came back to Israel, the priestly class uh, rose in power. And the high priest is the one who really became uh, the major leader <coughs> from that time all the way down to 70 A.D. And then that group or that class died out. Yes? Uh, the Sanhedrin was like our Congress, uh, made up of various political parties. Uh, they were the rulers, yes, they were the temple rulers, the Sanhedrin. But they would be similar in structure, not ideas or ideology, but to our Congress, where there are different parties and different houses, within Congress, okay? <laughs> At the time of Christ, there were seven different, six or seven, I forget which, different parties. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the largest and the most influential. But then you had the Zealots, the Indomians, the Essenes, and a couple others, okay? So Isaiah's message then must have been distributed through the synagogues. Through the synagogues, yes. yes. By, by word of mouth. Maybe. By word of mouth, but uh, it is believed that uh, it was also in writing because there's no indication that Isaiah was actually in Babylon. <laughs> he could have been. There's nothing to say he was or he wasn't. Now, we do know that um, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, was in Babylon. He was captured and taken there in 597 uh, B.C. And he is probably the one, we're not certain, but he is probably the one who started the uh, synagogue system. It wasn't called that at the time, but nevertheless, it was probably he that started the synagogue system because it was he that actually taught uh, the book of uh, Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, uh, and we're talking about not the Deuteronomy that we see today, because after they came back, there was more to it added. All right, the first um, five or six chapters were added later, and the ending was added much later. Okay, uh, but chapters 6 through 29, I believe it was, uh, was the main part of the book of the law that was studied in the synagogue system beginning in Babylon. Now, when they came back, those same people, I'm getting ahead of the story, but it helps to kind of pull things together. Uh, when they came back, they were so intent on obeying the laws of Moses as given the 613 laws that they almost, well, in fact they did, go to the opposite direction, you might say, pendulum swings in the opposite direction, and they were right back to where they were even before 
they went to Babylon, not so much in sinfulness, but in this blinded idea of worshiping the law. And even today, the Jewish people are so intent on worshiping and obeying the law that they've kind of given up the whole idea of a Messiah and they have no, in fact, I'm reading a book right now written by a Jewish rabbi as very interesting and it falls in line with a lot of the things that I've told you right here. Uh, but throughout the entire book, there's no talk about a personal relationship with God. There's no talk about heaven as we think of it as a reward uh, for living a good life. And there's no talk really about eternal life. Well, I don't think they intentionally started out, but that's how they got to where they are today. Yes. No, they still worship God, but only through obeying the laws. And, you know, if they feel that something is done that is not mentioned in the laws, then it's okay. Um, it's unfortunate. Um, throughout this book, and, and it was written in a very good way, uh, and it's fairly recent book, but unfortunately, there's so much lacking in what they're thinking that I had, I had to feel sorry for them. Because if you really think about it, your faith, whether you think about it directly or not, your faith carries you through a lot of difficult times. You know very much. Uh, and I've had a, a number of problems in my life. And if it wasn't for my faith, I don't know how I would have gotten through that. But these people depend on obeying the law. And without a personal relationship with God, a God that they know and they can see in their minds and hearts and who lived among us so that we have somebody to look to who lived among us and knew everyday life, and we're talking about Christ, of course. Uh, it is difficult to, to understand how obeying all of these laws would really be meaningful. Just a minute. No, most of them don't believe in it any life after death. So, that's it. No, they, they pray. You know, but the pray, praise and prayer to them is something that they're kind of, you know, throwing to the wind. They don't know any different. Yes? Well, you mentioned about faith and things that believe. Yes. Not, it's, it's more than believing, though. Yeah. Well, my question is, for people that do not acknowledge 
you, all right, you've, you've raised a good point. In other words, and if I may rephrase this, for people who live a good life, but don't believe in, in Christ, do they have an opportunity to get to heaven? Yeah. And the answer is yes. Because you have many people who never had an opportunity to really study Christ. Particularly, you might say, uh, people in China who have been so immersed in the culture of Buddha that Jesus Christ has never come except perhaps uh, as a, a person of history. All right. But if you go to the first letter of John, uh, John, I'm talking about John the Evangelist, the Apostle. He was very, very close to Christ. He was the one that lived the longest of all of the apostles. He wrote his gospel towards the end of the first century when he had a lot of time to understand who Jesus Christ was. He wrote his gospel in an entirely different format and different uh, way than the other three gospel writers did. We call the other three the synoptic gospels because their message and their layout of the gospel lines up pretty much side by side. And they talk about Jesus, the man who was also God. John comes in from a different point of view after having the opportunity to think about and pray and meditate and realize that this was God who became man. And John, the evangelist, is now taking this whole idea and really getting down to some of the nitty-gritty. And in his first letter, chapter 4, he is saying that if you are a loving person and you live according to the law of love of neighbor, regardless of who you are or where you come from or what your culture is or what your background is, if you love your neighbor as yourself, and you have some idea that there is a God up there, then you have an opportunity to come to heaven. Even though you've never heard about the Catholic Church. I want to go back just a little bit and and kind of quickly bring us forward into some of the things that... um, We've already talked about the the fear of these people. Uh, and remember, Isaiah is writing to those people who are reluctant to come back to Babylon uh, or have some problems. The people that uh, are saying, hallelujah, you know, let's go, well, you know, we'll, we'll go tomorrow. Uh, he doesn't have to worry about. It's the people that are dragging their heels. And remember, there were a lot of people born in Babylon who never knew anything about Jerusalem. And so they 
have, you know, uh, maybe an indifferent feeling about going back? Why should they leave something that might not be the greatest that they have in Babylon, but at least they're familiar with it? Uh, that's, you know, the thing that I'm talking about going back to Detroit. I know about Detroit, and I don't want to go back there, especially with the zero and minus zero weather that they've been having. Uh, no way. Okay. <clears throat> the point that I'm also making, and, and Isaiah makes here, is the comparison of the exodus from Babylon with the exodus from Egypt. Very similar in many respects, with a few exceptions. The people who were in Egypt did not go there because they were conquered. They went there voluntarily because of the severe famine in Israel. In Egypt at the time of was the only place uh, that had food. Okay. Because Joseph had uh, taught the people about saving for rainy day. In other words, saving for the years when harvest wasn't that great. But remember, with the Nile overflowing almost every year, uh, Egypt was probably the most fertile uh, part of the world at that time, uh, or that part of the world, you might say, and that's where food was available. So Jacob and his family migrated down, and there's a long story about that that's very interesting in the book of uh, Genesis, uh, as to how the people got to Egypt in the first place, uh, and that's where I started teaching scripture. I wanted to know, how did they get there in the first place and why? So I saw the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know, the Cecil B. DeMille, The Ten Commandments, and I thought, I got to find out how they got there. Why did they get there? Um, and so I started reading, and the Lord hooked me. I read and I read and I still read. Um, and then I thought, well, with all this knowledge, maybe somebody else might be interested. So I started teaching. Here I am 35 years later and I'm still teaching. Uh, but I enjoy it. Okay. But they did not get there as conquered people. So the experience was a little different, all right, uh, in comparing it with the exodus from Babylon. They were conquered people. And things had changed a great deal in 1,500 years, obviously. They had the Ten Commandments. They had a great deal of the Mosaic Law developed. It is now being uh, extended, you might say, through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, they had the opportunity to have uh, a temple. They had a prosperous living of independence in in Israel. Uh, unfortunately, it was divided by um, some of the early kings after Solomon, and it kind of be, fell apart after that. The monarchy fell apart. Um, so, 
you have all of these changes, and so the the comparisons are not really uh, the same. But nevertheless, the people are concerned about what might happen uh, when they leave Babylon, and Jesus is trying to reassure them that he will protect them. All right, let's go on because there are some really important things here that we need to talk about, okay? Beginning with chapter 43 on page 116. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, Jacob, and formed you, Israel? Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Especially those in the choir? Yeah. Be not afraid is the song. Okay. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. Through rivers, you shall not be swept away. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. They're talking about the desert here now. This is the migration back from Babylon to Israel. For I, the Lord, am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give, Egypt, I give Egypt as ransom for you, and Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Now that's something that people do not understand. What does that mean, I give Egypt and ransom? What he's talking about here is that Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonians. And he is on a world conquest. But he is also being used by God in a good way to release the uh, Israelites from Babylon. They weren't called Jews yet at, at that time yet. In fact, you won't find the word Jew in use in most of the Old Testament. That was a very recent, uh, when I say recent, in the latter part of the Old Testament time period. Okay. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give people in return for you. In other words, what he's doing is he's allowing Cyrus the Great to conquer certain other nations and by doing so he's favoring Cyrus for allowing the people to return or he's inspiring them, him to allow the people to return and he's not only allowing them to return but he's helping them by giving them back the, the utensils uh, that were taken out of the temple before it was destroyed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, etc., etc. Okay? Uh, it says, Fear not, for I am with you. And from the east I will bring you back, I will bring back your offspring. And from the west I will gather you. Well, what does that mean? All right? During this particular time period, the whole 6th century B.C., when conquests were going on, particularly uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, the people in Israel, the wealthy people who could, 
scattered to all parts of the world to get away from being conquered. And that is called the diaspora, or some people pronounce it diaspora. And the word is where we get our word disbursement from. So people scattered. Before this, they were sort of uh, corralled, you might say, into the area of greater Israel as we know it today. And it was part of the Mosaic law that they not leave there. Okay. But at the Babylonian, well, the Assyrian, it started with the Assyrian conquest of the north, but with the Babylonian uh, conquest in the south, the people that could got out and scattered all over the known world at that time, primarily to North Africa and to Greece. Okay. So that became the diaspora, and it is looked upon as uh, a bad thing in a way. Actually, I look upon it as something that God wanted in the first place to spread the whole idea of Judaism to all of the world. Remember, Judaism was established by God himself as a basis for what eventually became Christianity. So this is what he's talking about. I will scatter you from, or or bring you back really from the east and from the west. Um, I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring back my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. All who are called by my name, I created for my glory. I formed them and made them. Uh, in 1948, when Israel was reestablished by the United Nations as an independent and sovereign country, these verses were uh, used um, to show that God is fulfilling them. All right. And because uh, Israel was open to virtually anybody and everybody that wanted to come there and uh, live according to the Jewish life. Let all the nations gather together. Let the people assemble. Who among them could have declared this or announced to us the earlier things? Let them produce witnesses to prove themselves right, that one may hear and say, it is true, you are my witnesses, oracle of the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, to know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Believe me, no God was formed, and after me there shall be none. This is in refuting the Jewish people who had been uh, worshipping pagan idols. We get over into a, another section and it talks about the use of the wood. Uh, let's see, where is that? Rita, where was that? Okay. says, you did not call upon me, Jacob. This is verse 22. You did not call upon me, Jacob, 
for you grew weary of me, Israel. You did not bring me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honor me with your sacrifices. This is in referring back to the time that they were in Israel and uh, before the captivity started. And this is partly why they neglected God. They neglected the sacrifices and the offerings and the whole purpose for which he brought them together. I did not exact from you the service of offerings, nor weary you for frankincense. You did not buy me sweet uh, cane, nor did you fill me with the fat of your sacrifices. Instead, you burdened me with your sins and worried me with your crimes. It is I, I who wipe out for my own sake your offenses. All right? Very important statement. I wipe out for my own sake. In other words, for my purposes, I am forgiving you. Because God's plan of salvation is still the objective of what he is doing here or and why he is doing it. He's bringing the remnant back from Babylon uh, to Israel to restart Judaism in its home grounds. Very important point because without that, when Christ appears, if Judaism had died out, let's say, let's talk, for example, in the 5th or 6th century B.C., through Assyria in the north and Babylon, or Babylonia in the south, Uh, supposing Judaism had totally died out. Now, let's advance 500 years later and Christ appears on earth. These people would totally have forgotten all about the law of Moses and all of what was, uh, what had preceded them. What would Christ be teaching? Christ would come, you know, totally out of the blue, and people would have no way to reconnect him with all of that which went before him. And there would be no basis. But we've got to remember that much of our belief system comes from the Jewish people. Uh, There's a popular book out written 15, 20 years ago called uh, Salvation is from the Jews and uh, it's it's an okay book but the title I have a little problem with because salvation is not from the Jews but it is through the Jews in other words through the Jews but raised up and completed through Jesus Christ. For if the Jews only brought the foundation, they did not bring the the main part of it. That was completed through Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus was a Jew. We have to look at it that way. So salvation is through the Jews, not from the Jews. Chapter 40, 
four is almost entirely trying to put down the whole idea of idol worship. And what I'd like to do is to go on page 118 to the commentary. I couldn't say it any better, so I'd like to read and emphasize some of this here. Uh, up in the first part of the commentary is something that I've already talked about, and it's comparing the exodus of Egypt to the exodus from Babylon. Babylon. It says the two events were separated from each other by hundreds of years. He was certain that the former illuminated the latter. Okay, that's true, but uh, there are big differences as well. Going further down... <coughs> about halfway or in the middle of that whole section, it says, just as the prophet reinterpreted the Exodus story in terms of the exile's experience, so did the New Testament reinterpret that same story as a way to speak of the significance of Jesus Christ. The hymns of the African-American Christian community followed the same pattern as does the liberation theology of the Americas. That's primarily South America. The prophet has shown many generations of believers how the exodus can always be something new. Unfortunately, God's liberation of the Hebrew slaves from Egypt did not produce a grateful people. They constantly murmured in the wilderness and on the way to the promised land, and they rebelled against Moses, and this, of course, is why they rebelled in three different situations. And that is why God chose to have the perpetrators of those problems uh, wander in the desert for 40 years and die out so that they never reached the promised land. This pattern continued once Israel arrived in Canaan. Instead of gratitude, Israel burdened God with its sins. At first, God chose to ignore Israel's sins, but its constant rebellion led God to remember the sins of all Israel, from those of Jacob to those of the present generation. God had no other choice but to abandon Israel. Still, the prophet suggests that Judah not focus on the past, but on what God will do in the future. And that is true. God has taken the initiative in empowering Israel as a witness. God will transform Israel and make it an effective witness through the outpouring of God's spirit into the disparate exile community. Now, this was brought up by the prophet Ezekiel. At the time the people were in um, Babylon. And so, it is nothing new. He says, this is, I'm reading from Ezekiel now, chapter 36. For I will take you away from among the nations. In other words, he again is referring, Ezekiel is referring to the release of the exiles now from Babylon. I will take you away from the nations and gather you from all the foreign lands 
and bring you back to your own land. This is the diaspora that I mentioned earlier. I will sprinkle clean water upon you to cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That's, of course, I will sprinkle clean water. Again, he's talking about baptism in the uh, in the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you, taking from your bodies your stony hearts and giving you natural hearts. I will put my spirit within you and make you live by my statutes, careful to observe my decrees. You shall live in the land I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. So you see, the people... Of the exile were given a lot of reasons to believe in, in God, believe that what God was telling them through the prophet would come to be, and yet they still doubted. But not all of them. Obviously, there had to be a lot of good people because, again, once they came back to Israel, the synagogue system flowered and grew very strong. And the people became very entrenched in obeying the law. But unfortunately, they went to extremes. And instead of honoring God with their holiness and their just um, society that helped each other to become the light to other nations, the surrounding nations. They took to making themselves exclusive. And instead of going out, they did just the opposite. They became a very exclusive community, um, an exclusive nation, did not want to bother with other nations or enlighten them in any way. Remember, at the time of Christ, it was a very major crime against Judaism for a Jew to enter the home of a Gentile and eat with them as was definitely forbidden. And so that's why Jesus Christ was uh, put down so often because he would go into the houses of the Gentiles and eat with them and try to convince them of his way of thinking. And the Jews felt that that was uh, a big no-no. Okay. At the bottom of 119 and continued over into uh, 120 is this whole idea of uh, the wood. The wood that they used to make little carved idols. Uh, it was just plain wood. And he's making the comparison here that wood is used for a lot of good things. But making idols was not one of them. Uh, used uh, wood was used for fires, for cooking, 
for making houses, for making furniture. And of course, I'm using my own words here. But uh, it was not intended for making gods because wood could not do any of those things that they expected gods to do. Um, says down here, well, this whole section on page 120, it is used for fuel. With some of the wood, he warms himself and makes a fire and bakes bread. Yet he makes a god and worships it out of the same wood, turns it into an idol and adores it. Half of it he burns in the fire. On its embers he roasts meat. He eats the roast and is full. He warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm. I see the flames. The rest of it he makes into a god. Eh. An image to worship and adore. He prays to it and says, help me. You are my god. They do not know. Do not understand. Their eyes are too clouded to see. Their minds to perceive. He does not think clearly. He lacks the wit and knowledge to say. Half the wood I burned in the fire... On its embers, I baked bread, I roasted meat and ate. Shall I turn the rest into an abomination? Shall I worship a block of wood? He is chasing ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray. He cannot save himself and does not say, This is my right hand and this is not a fraud. Remember these things, Jacob. Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you for a servant to me, Israel. You shall never be forgotten by me. Excuse me. I have brushed you away like your, away your offenses like a crowd. Your sins like a mist. Return to me. For I have redeemed you. Sometimes it it saddens me to to read things like that because the people are so stubborn. And yet, and yet, are things any different today? We have to stop and think about what is this saying to us today? It has to be saying something. Because if we do not sit back and spend a few moments on reflecting on what God is saying to the Israelites or the uh, exiles or any of them, Could these things not happen to us today? And what are we doing about it? Part of the problem of the situation that we have today with people worshipping virtually everything under the sun except God is because we let it. We don't do anything about it. I hear over and over when I ask that question, what have you done about it? Well, I'm only one person, they say. What can I do? Well, 
You're only one person, but you can pray. You can write letters. You can do a lot of things. The main thing is, you can see that anyone in your charge, your children, your spouse, God forbid your spouse, but nevertheless, (coughs) is advised to turn away from those things that are offensive. Uh, For example, I'm sure that most of you probably saw the the halftime show at the Super Bowl or during the Super Bowl. I thought it was disgustingly raunchy. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's that's just what goes on today. Well, that goes on because we let it. But I thought it was a disgusting waste of what could have been time and talent. Compare that with the beauty of the opening ceremony of the Olympics. You don't have that kind of thing in Russia. Not that we should be like the Russian people. I'm not saying that. But there should be some happy medium. Um, The whole idea of the exploitation of sex and deviated sex um, and the foodie shows that are show, uh, you know, some of those shows are practically glorifying food and its preparation and its consumption. Those things are way beyond what is, well, they're just immoral when you consider the number of people that are are going hungry today. I don't want to overdo this, but the thing is, if you read scripture and study scripture for the purpose of understanding history, then you've missed the point. Scripture is intended to direct you and your life and lifestyle. And if you are totally ignoring some of the things that we are reading here, especially with the stuff I just got through reading, then you've missed the point. We have different kinds of idols today, but nevertheless, there are a lot of idols being used today. The iPads and the iPods and the tablets and all of that have become such a distraction that people are totally uh, immersed in that. The other, last night or the night before, uh, I saw a commercial on television that says, or it was bragging about how they could record four TV stations at one time while watching a fifth. I thought, there aren't five programs on television that are worthwhile. So, how could they brag about something that is actually wrong? Okay. Um, it's The point is, they have gone beyond what is reasonable. And each of us needs to stop and think, where am I along this line? 
Yeah, well, what Rita is just saying is that we have a tendency to think about the six million Jewish people that were killed during the Second World War by the, the Germans, uh, but there were many others uh, included in that uh, Holocaust activity, uh, primarily Catholics, a lot of uh, priests and, and nuns simply because they were Catholics and put them down. Uh, there are a number of, of uh, saints that have come out of that. Maximilian uh, Colby, Maximilian Colby, uh, Edith Stein, uh, and I would imagine that in, in time to come, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a number of people like that will also be recognized as saints. Uh, so, uh, in the name of the Father, the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we've talked about a lot of things today. We ask that you help us to think about them in our daily life as we go forward for the next week. Help us not to just set aside what is said up here and in class and forget it. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to try to understand how Holy Scripture, the Bible, really applies to us today as much as it did at the time it was written. It is a living book. It is called the Word of God, but it is the Word of God only when we live it. Otherwise, it's just words on a page. So help us to open our minds and our hearts to truly live Holy Scripture and not just read it as history. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.